Good morning, Journey. So awesome to get to see you. Uh, I'm just going to say it. I love the fall. I love the fact that uh, the nights are getting a lot more crisp. I love bobcat football. I love starting lots of texts right now with, did you get your elk? Lots of people out there trying to get their elk right now. I love that in a church like ours, lots of young people, our college students are back here. It always feels great to have you. So welcome back college students. I will say this about college students. You're you're a lot more excited about life right now at the very beginning of September when you're not behind in in all of your classes. Um, But I also seem to notice around midterms and finals, you're a lot more desperate for God. And so you tend to show up a lot more (laughs) then as well. But here's the thing. If If you're falling behind right now, don't worry about it. These are words that you need to take with you for the rest of your life. The sooner you get behind, the more time you have to catch up. So if you're gonna if you're gonna get behind, do it right now. Love you, college students. I don't think it would be uh, an exaggeration for me to say that just about on a daily basis, I have a conversation with someone uh, about the level of stress, about the level of anxiety, about the level of depression that they're experiencing in their life. And, and this makes sense that this would be the case because the most common psychological disorder in the United States is anxiety and depression. And that was before COVID. The CDC has released some statistics that have said that in the last two years, anxiety in our country has tripled. The number of people that are wrestling with depression has quadrupled. And if you're one of those young people that I talked about, About 25% of our church is made up of people from 18 to 24. Statistics say that half, half of you are wrestling in deep ways with anxiety and depression. Just talking to a friend, one of those conversations that I have almost every day, ran into him at the gym and uh, he was just sharing about uh, an appointment with his doctor, trying to talk through some of the levels of anxiety and stress and depression that he was uh, wrestling with. And he said when he got his bill in the mail, there was a little flyer in there that said, in Gallatin County right now, statistics say that one out of every three people are wrestling in deep ways with anxiety and depression. Can we just try to make that a little bit personal right here as a, as a church family? Just think about it. Uh, three people, there's someone on your left, there's someone on your right. Statistically speaking, one of you right now is feeling buried in anxiety and depression. Think about your family. Just, just go around your kitchen table. Who's there? One out of every three wrestling with anxiety and depression. Think about where you work. Think about your classmates. Think about your church. One in every three pastors then is wrestling with severe levels of anxiety and depression. And it manifests itself, and the fruit of that comes out in lots of different ways with different people. Some of you are experiencing sleeplessness, incredible amounts of loneliness and isolation. Some of you, the anxiety and depression that you've felt has moved you toward addictions and escape that you don't even know how you're going to get out of. For some of you, it manifests itself in anger and violence. The fruit comes out in lots of different ways. But the source of it is that we are wrestling so often with so many big questions that we're trying to navigate in this life. 
questions that we want to know the answers to. Questions sometimes that are out there, outside of us, like what is going on in this world? We look at all the the crisis around the globe, things that are happening in Afghanistan, and it, it affects us personally as we try to get our hearts and our minds around what's going on. Even in our own country, you just think about the racial tensions that are just ripping apart the fabric of our country. We think about the political polarization. People can't even have a conversation about ideas anymore. There's so much anger out there. Truth. Where do we even find truth anymore? Can we trust anything that we read? We look at all these things that we can just step back and just say, has the world gone mad? All these questions of how to navigate this bring anxiety in the lives of people. And that's just things that are happening sometimes on the peripheral of your world. But you've got your nuclear world too, your day-to-day life as well. You're trying to navigate lots of questions as well. How am I going to raise my kids in this kind of environment? Are my kids even safe at school? How am I going to deal with the addictions that I've grabbed a hold of in the midst of my anxiety and depression? How am I going to deal with the relational breakups in my life? So many relationships that are hanging by a thread. Marriages that are just barely hanging on. Relationships with our kids that are broken. Kids that have wandered away from us, wandered away from faith. How are we going to navigate that? Maybe you're experiencing that significant amount of loneliness and isolation. Maybe you just had to walk in here. This was the hardest thing you could do to try to come in here and make it look like you had it all together. But inside you know that you are lonely and you're isolated and you're dying and nobody even knows about it. All alone. Financial issues. Health issues that you're wrestling with or people that you love are wrestling with. Some of the questions that we have are like, where is God in all of this? God, do you see what's happening with me? Do you understand the suffering that I'm going through? These are the questions that are oftentimes boiling on the surface of our life. Here's what this series is about. We're not gonna try to answer every one of those questions, but here's what we believe. We believe if you follow the roots of some of these questions that are boiling on the surface of our life, you follow those roots down to their end, you'll find that oftentimes those questions will be rooted in three fundamental questions that we've got to answer in our life because the answer to those questions affect how we think about and answer all the other questions in life. We're gonna look at questions like, who am I? Questions like, where do I belong? Questions like, what difference can I make? In this series, we're gonna be talking about three ideas. One, we're gonna be talking about that question of identity. That question of who am I? How do I to view myself? Who am I really? We're gonna be talking about that question of where do I fit that gets to the idea of belonging. What is my connection to all the other people that are out there in this world? And lastly, that question of can I make a difference? What difference can I make? Because that gets to the issue of purpose. What is my contribution to this world? What has God made me for in this world? 
The first one that we get to dive into today is identity. Who am I? When we try to define identity, what we're simply talking about is our view of ourselves, our self-understanding. Who do I believe that I am at my very core? But not just who I am, but a, a question that goes right alongside that. In light of who I am, what is it that gives me worth in this world? What is it that makes me valuable in this world? That's the question of identity. So I want us to step back just for a second and begin to think about how do we come to, how do we arrive at the answer to this question of identity? In our Western culture, if you talk to enough people, this is what you're gonna hear. You are the one who decides who you are. Nobody else gets to decide for you who you are, it's you. And a fancy word for this is what we call expressive individualism. Now there's a long definition of what it means, what expressive individualism means, but I thought what would be better is if I just shared with you some of the slogans that our culture grabs a hold of that come out of this idea of expressive individualism. Listen to these. Their slogans would be, you be you. You do you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Be your best self. Be the best version of you. Have you heard that in our culture? Like everywhere. What's the common denominator? You. It's all about you. You are at the center of the universe and everything else rotates around you. No one else gets to tell me who I am. I look inside myself and then I try to become who I want. Here's what I believe. I believe this kind of thinking has so permeated our Western culture and I believe in some ways has so permeated the church that I, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but there's probably some of you that as I shared those slogans, you're just like, yep, that's exactly right. Preach it, bald man. That's true, right there. That's how you find out who you really are. I just wanna push back a little bit. I like to do that. I think it's naive for us to believe that we can just look in our side of ourselves and find out who we are. I think it's naive to believe that we are not influenced by our culture in terms of who we want to be, who we think we need to be. And we believe, and the reason we're doing this series is because we believe these fundamental questions that Jesus has the best answers to these questions. Because if you just went out and started to talk to people and ask them questions, maybe not as directly as who are you, but try to understand what their sense of self is, you're gonna hear things like, I am what others expect of me. I just try to figure out what it is that other people want me to be or what other people need me to be, and I do everything I can to become that. There's just this sense of burden and expectation that's placed on us. I've gotta be what other people need me to be. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's teachers, Friends, the culture at large, maybe it's your church. 
Maybe you're just trying to live up to the expectations of your church. There's lots of voices. There's lots of voices out there that want to tell you who you are and who you should be. What are the voices that are speaking to you about who you are? If you start to talk to people about who they are and that that other question that comes alongside this idea of self-worth, people often will look at this idea of self-worth through the lens of what I'm not. They're constantly having the thing going through their mind that says, I am not blank enough. And we've tried to fill in that blank with whatever we feel the most judged by. Maybe it's our culture that we sense is judging us. Maybe it's us judging ourselves. But we fill in that blank. I'm not funny enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not skinny enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not successful enough. And we just compare ourselves to everything out there that we think we ought to be. And the comparison kills us and destroys our sense of self-worth. Some people, when you press who they think they are, it's this idea of an image that they're trying to project to the world. Who I am is what other people think I am. And so we do everything that we can to try to create this image, try to create this brand, this style of who we are. But really, it's not a brand. It's just a mask trying to cover up the reality that I don't know who I really am. I don't know what gives me worth as a person. Here's why we're doing this series. I'll say it again. Jesus has the best answers to these questions. He has the only answers to this question that is gonna stand the test of time. And what Jesus is gonna tell us, it's not about looking inside of yourself. It's not about looking out to people around you. It's not about looking to the culture. It's about looking up. We've gotta look outside of ourselves and look up to get our identity. Matthew chapter three, starting in verse 13, the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, the voice of the father said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. We see in this picture an example of the life of Jesus. Our identity, who we are at our very core, what gives us worth, it's not something that's inside of us, it's not something that the culture gives us, it's something that God himself and him alone can give us. Jesus showed us this example 
His identity was bestowed from the Father. You're my son. I love you. I delight in you. I'm so proud of you. And we need to remind ourselves that this was the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. What had Jesus done up until this point to earn the love and the delight and the pride of the Father? Nothing. Jesus hadn't preached a message yet. How many followers were in tow behind Jesus at this point? Zero. Zero. Unless you count John, maybe one. It seemed like his cousin John at his baptism was kind of on his team, but maybe one. He hadn't performed a miracle, hadn't cast out a demon, hadn't done anything that was going to make his name great. But then the father says, you're my son, and I love you. With you, I'm well pleased. What we need to understand from this picture is that the identity that we long for is not something we find in ourselves. It's something that is bestowed upon us by our father, just like it was for Jesus. Your identity is something that you receive from God. It's not something you achieve through your self-effort. It comes from him and him alone, and that identity changes everything for us. I grew up around church things, but I didn't actually become a follower of Jesus until I was a sophomore in college. It was at that point that, for whatever reason, I understood for the first time really who Jesus was and what it was that he had done for me, and I surrendered my life to him. I said, if that's true, Jesus, if you died in my place to pay the penalty for my sins, I've got no other choice than to say, I belong to you. My life is yours. And it wasn't like everything in my life changed instantly, but I began to see my values changing. I really did want to be whoever he wanted me to be, do whatever he wanted me to do, go wherever he wanted me to go. As I got toward the end of college, because I believed that there were other people out on the college campus that were probably just like me, that if someone would sit down with them and explain to them the greatest message ever proclaimed, they would jump at the chance. And I thought, why wouldn't I want to do whatever I could to be a part of bringing that message to others? And so Carmen and I, we were graduating in engineering, but we just said, God is taking us in a different direction. Made all the sense in the world to us. Did not always make sense to everybody else in our world like my dad. My dad was so proud of me and what I had accomplished academically as a college student. I think he just kind of had this picture of where I was heading in life. And so when I sat down with him and said, dad, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into ministry. And so my dad has lots of questions. He's always concerned about me. Like, how are you going to make ends meet? I just met with him last week for the first time since the shutdown of COVID, got a chance to sit down with him, and he asked me the same question. How are things at the church? Are you eating three meals a day? <laughs> Dad, I'm, I'm eating just fine. But that's always his concern for me. Are you gonna be able to figure out how to make ends meet? And so he's like, well, how does this ministry thing work? And I said, okay, here's what I'm gonna do, Dad. I'm gonna talk to other people that I think might care about people hearing this message as much as I do, and I'm gonna ask them to give me money every month so that Carmen and I can eat and sleep indoors. Made perfect sense to him, right? Not exactly. 
So in that conversation, I just remember my dad saying, so are you telling me you're gonna try to become the next Jim Baker or Jimmy Swaggart? And now some of you may not know who those names are, but they were televangelists that were uh, just, just went in the wrong direction, built people out of lots of resources, had a really bad season in their life. It was so hard for me that my dad associated me with that. I had this sense of shame that I carried around with me, like my dad is not proud of who I am and what I do. Fast forward a handful of years. It's Father's Day. I'm taking my dad out to lunch for Father's Day. We're sitting at the table, and I'm just sharing with him some stories about some of my classmates from college and uh, graduated in the early 90s, and there were some of my friends that went to work for companies in California, and they had the opportunity to get some stock options as part of their bonus of signing on, and some of these stocks like went absolutely through the roof. They became incredibly wealthy people in their mid to late 20s. And so I'm telling my dad about this, like my friends are calling me, like where am I gonna spend my money? How am I, where am I gonna buy land? What am I gonna do? And I was just recounting this to him, and then suddenly it dawns on me, I'm probably breaking my dad's heart. Probably everything in him is thinking, Bob, that could have been you. You could have gone down that road. And as that sense of shame started to flow over me, I just remember kind of looking down at the table and I just said, I know, dad, that will never be my life. And my dad reached across the table and he grabbed my arms My dad's not a touchy-feely guy, but he grabbed my arms and he said, Babo, my dad calls me Babo. You can call me Babo if you want. He said, Babo, I'm so proud of you. I love what you're doing. I can't tell you what happened inside of me sitting at that table. I can tell you what happened to me when I got out into my car. I ugly cried. I heave cried. Because I just couldn't believe it. My dad. My dad's proud of me. Proud of what I'm doing. It changed every. I didn't even know what I was carrying until I heard him say, I'm proud of you. I love what you're doing with your life. When someone that we love and respect and admire bestows honor upon us, it changes us. My dad... He's just a man. The God of the universe. Look down at Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. You are united with him. That means that everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. That means that the God of the universe looks down at you. And he said, you're mine. You belong to me. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I am so proud of you. The God of the universe looks down. And whatever you think about yourself, whatever you think you are or you're not, he looks down at you and he says, you're enough. You are enough. To me, you're enough. What better validation can we have? Our identity isn't something that we're gonna muster up inside of ourselves. It's nothing that the culture 
is gonna speak into our lives. Our true identity, who we are at our core and our sense of self-worth can only come from him. And he generously bestows it upon us. He wants you to know who you are. And it's who you are that gives you worth. But here's what Jesus also knows and experiences, experienced in his life. You are gonna have to battle to maintain that identity in your life. Because in the very next verse, Jesus bumps up against a powerful enemy that wants to come at his identity. The enemy, Satan. Chapter four, verse one. There's a chapter break, but it's all one story in the original writing. Chapter four, starting in verse one. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Fasting and praying, 40 days, 40 nights. What do you think was happening during that time? Jesus is listening to the voice of the Father. The Father is probably reiterating the reality of who he is, who he belongs to, what it is that he's called to. Then verse three, the tempter came to him and said, Where does the tempter start with Jesus? He doesn't validate his identity. He calls it into question. What does the evil one say, Satan? If you are the son of God. Again, he says it, if you are the son of God. Like questioning, accusing. If if that's really true, then trying to get Jesus to take shortcuts, to do it his way. Don't follow the father. Do it another way. But Jesus responds with the word because this word is the voice of God. All scripture is God-breathed. It's the exhaling of God. It's his voice to us. He held up the scriptures and said, this is what is true of me. This is true of what I am called to be. Let me just say, if there is an enemy, and let me back up, it is a real enemy enemy. When we talk about Satan, when we talk about the devil, we're not talking about some kind of a cartoon caricature. This is a real personal being that is set on the destruction of the kingdom of God. He hates God and he hates you. He wants to destroy you because he knows how much God cares about you. If he, this adversary, was willing to go at the identity of the son of God, How much more is he going to be willing to go after our identity, to call it into question? Our identity gets called into question, doesn't it? If you are a child of God, would your life really look like that? You're not this enough to be loved by God. Accusation, condemnation, that is the voice of the evil one. In fact, that word there that John uses, devil, diabolos, simply translated means the accuser. When you are walking through life and you are hearing the voice of accusation about you and your life, when you're hearing the voice of condemnation, you don't have to wonder who's talking to you. It's him. It's the evil one. Because that is not the voice of God to his children. His voice says, I love you. You belong to me and I am proud of you. We always talk about read the word, read the word, read the word. 
The reason we say that over and over again is because this is what God says is true about you. We've got to be reminded over and over and over again because you are in an all-out assault for your identity. The evil one wants to distract you in every way that he can. The last thing that we see in the life of Jesus is that he's a model for us of how to live out our identity. This is what I love about what God did in the incarnation. Jesus coming to earth, fully human, fully God, but fully man at the same time. Two distinct natures united together in one person. Difficult to understand, but biblically true. It's how we understand. Jesus came because he wanted to identify with us. He wants to identify with you. I mean, just think about that picture for a second about the baptism, his baptism. Wouldn't have made way more sense if Jesus was the one standing on the hill calling out for sinners to repent and turn to God and him baptizing John. John thinks that's what makes sense. That's why he's like, Jesus, why would I baptize you? This is, this is upside down. Why was it upside down? Because Jesus came to identify with you. No, 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 John, you stay on the hill. What you're speaking is truth. I'm gonna be with the sinners. I'm gonna show them the way of salvation. I'm gonna show them how to do what I'm asking them to do. I'm gonna lead them into this salvation that I'm gonna accomplish for them on the cross down the road. He wants to identify with you. The magnitude of that, friends, has to land on us. He identifies with you. He knows what it's like to be you. Here's how the writer of Hebrews explains it. I love this. Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 14. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus understands our weaknesses. Why? Because he had them himself. He experienced temptation himself. This is how it continues. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with grace and confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I'm gonna press in a little bit. I'm gonna say some things that I know for some of you, it's gonna make you a little bit uncomfortable, but I hope the discomfort is because you're actually challenging your thinking a little bit and maybe challenging some of your presuppositions. What does it mean that Jesus was fully God and fully man and he identifies with us in our weaknesses and he understands our temptation? Let me ask some questions. In light of that, did Jesus ever struggle with identity? This question that we're wrestling with. Did Jesus ever struggle with that? Did Jesus ever struggle with insecurity? Did Jesus ever wonder about what other people were thinking? Did he ever have issues with self-image? Did he ever have issues with appearance? 
Did he ever have issues with the role that he was having to play? That he was the humble servant washing the feet of others, being treated unfairly as the son of God. Did that ever, was he ever tempted in any way? Biblical scholars, conservative biblical scholars, and I too would say, I think so. In some way, in some form, he knows what it's like to experience the things that we have experienced in terms of what it means to be human. And you've got to hear me say that. I am no way trying to diminish the deity of Jesus. It is magnificent. But sometimes I think we focus on that, the strength that he experienced as that spirit that came on him at his baptism, as he listened to that spirit and lived a perfectly spirit-filled life that you and I can live also, by the way. We focus on the power and the strength of his life. But sometimes we forget the humanity side. He came here and experienced everything that we've experienced because he wanted to identify with us. I know that this wigs people out, frustrates them to even think about, like like I'm trying to put Jesus lower than he is. Watch this video of Dallas Jenkins. He's the producer of the show called The Chosen. I don't, uh, my wife, she's so into The Chosen uh, at our house. We're watching She loves watching it. And let me just say this before you pull out your phone and start sending me an email. The chosen is not the Bible. In fact, very little of what is in the chosen comes from the Bible. And that's what the producer Dallas Jenkins himself would say. It's him trying to create a story in and around the life and the characters that relate to the stories that we know in the Bible. But much of it is is just fiction, but trying to give us a picture of what it may have been like to be some of the key players and some of the some of the key cast in the life of Jesus. Season two, episode five, he said, you know, he always gets feedback, people giving him criticism. The the criticism exploded after episode five of season two. There was a 10 second clip in episode five. And you know what that 10 second clip was? It was Jesus preparing the Sermon on the Mount. It was just Jesus kind of mulling over like the wording and how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna say this in a way? Now I, Dallas Jenkins, nobody knows, did Jesus prepare? And people were so upset, like he's God, he wouldn't have to prepare a sermon. But as I listened to that, I just thought, you know, if part of Jesus wanting to identify with me, it means a lot to me that maybe he wrestled with what are the best words to say? And maybe him standing before the Father saying, God, what is it that you want me to say? I can relate to that. I can identify with that. In fact, it makes me start asking a lot of other questions I would really love to ask Jesus. Like, did you get nervous? My biggest sermon you're ever gonna give. Did you get nervous? And this is what I would really wanna know is like, Jesus, when I get nervous, I sweat. Like, did your tunic get pits like I get in my shirts? You guys just think that I like to wear black and patterns. It's because it's the only thing that covers the fact that I'm scared to death up here half the time. I can identify with that. Jesus wants us to identify with him. Jesus is the model of what does it look like to live the perfectly spirit-filled life? The kind of life that Jesus lived, it doesn't lower 
who what I'm talking about doesn't lower Jesus. We know what it does. It raises the bar for us because Jesus said, all I did was I lived a fully human life in the power of the Holy Spirit. That same spirit that came upon me at my baptism is the same spirit that inhabits every true follower of Jesus. You can live this kind of life true too. Jesus said it. John 14, 12, let this land on you. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And Jesus was gonna send the Spirit so that we could live the supernatural life that he lived. That's what Jesus calls us to be. He is our example of what does it look like to live a perfectly Spirit-filled life. Let me tie it back to the beginning. You will never live the kind of life that God wants you to live. You will never be who God created you to be without first knowing that you are who he says that you are. That your identity is found and found only in him. Not in what the culture says to you. Not in what when you look inside yourself, you find for yourself, but it is what he says is true of you. Just like for Jesus, is the same as true of us. Our identity is received from him as a gift. It's not achieved by anything that we accomplish. And this transformation of our identity, this learning to understand who we are really as a child of God, I believe it probably takes a lifetime to figure that out. At least it's taken me that long. I've got to be reminded over and over again. Just Saturday, I was sitting with my wife and kind of sharing with her challenges that I'm experiencing in life and things that I'm feeling and experiencing. She just looked back across the table at me and she's like, I think what you need to do, Bob, is just apply your sermon that you're going to preach tomorrow. And I was just like, you're right. I am, Jesus, who you say that I am. Carmen's not the Holy Spirit in my life, but if she was, she'd be a pretty good one. But that's what we need to grab a hold of. We will never be who God created us to be until we first believe in the depths of who we are, that I am who you say that I am. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your example. Thankful, thank you for your model for us of what it means to be your child, to live out of an identity that we receive from you. We don't achieve in our striving. We come to you today, Jesus, and we say we are who you say that we are. And it's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. 
If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.